Podcast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Our special guest host again this week, Paul Kimball, and we have an interesting show about the relationship between science fiction and the paranormal, and it could be kind of strange. I have some strange stories to tell, and I will a little bit later. Now, in a previous episode, Paul and I were talking about some of the old cases that never seem to die, like Aztec. And I think the big question today, Paul, is are there any old cases, maybe other than Roswell, that we should even bother about anymore? Isn't it time to let the dead be buried and go on with research over current events? Of all the old cases, Roswell would be the one that I would let go, actually. I would flip your question on its side and say, look, of all the old cases, isn't Roswell the one that we should just sort of say, you know what, enough is enough. This has taken up far too much of our time and effort over the last 20 or 30 years. Can we not move on to more productive pursuits? Because we don't have an answer to Roswell, and we never will, one that will satisfy everybody. So why don't we just say, look, you guys, like Kevin Randall and Stan Friedman, you think an alien spacecraft crashed there, and, and you're convinced of that. Fine, you go do your thing. You guys, like the late Carl Flock and Jim Mosley and, and many others, you're convinced that it was Project Mogul. Okay, that's fine, you, you do your thing. You guys, like Nick Redfern, you have a different point of view, a different theory. That's great, you do your thing. And let's just all move on. I wouldn't say don't look at old cases, but I'm a historian, Gene. That was what my undergraduate degree was in. So I have a, I have an, you know, an innate fondness for history. And I think you can learn things from history. I think there are still a lot of cases out there that we can learn things from, even if we view, you know, just patterns or things that we can put into perspective or to keep a historical perspective so that we don't repeat mistakes that maybe UFO researchers made 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago. Having said that, there's also a place for new investigations, of course, for cases like Stephenville or the O'Hare case or any one of a, a number of cases that come up every year. There's new cases every year. In my film, Best Evidence, uh, there was a case from 1996, which is of relatively recent vintage in the Yukon Territory in Canada. It's a very good case, multiple witnesses, multiple locations, and it was investigated pretty well by a guy named Martin Jasek out in British Columbia and others, but he was the lead investigator, wrote a report about it. Now, whatever you think that case was, and you can Google it on the internet, 1996 UFO Yukon, you'll probably find it, and put Jasek's name in, J-A-S-E-K, you'll be able to find it. Whatever you think that case was, I mean, there's an example of some good research. He did it pretty much at the time the case happened, and a report comes out of it. Well, that's what we should do. We should not throw away historical cases. There's a lot we can learn from them. There's a, a number of them that are still very interesting and unresolved, but we should also continue, and I think this is what UFO research has kind of lost in the last few years, last few decades maybe, is to do what Hynek and others did, investigate new cases. And I think the 500-pound gorilla in the room that has brought that to a screeching halt is not something like the RB47 case in 1957, which almost nobody knows about, or the Kelly Johnson case in 1953, or any of those cases, all great cases. It's Roswell. Roswell and the crash flying saucer mythos that it resurrected, and then MJ-12, and all of the conspiracy stuff that came out of that, basically, Roswell. You know, um, that's another point I wanted to bring up here. It seems in UFO research, people 
come in here and it's like 1950 all over again. Oh, we can't figure it out. It must be spaceships. It's like repeating Donald Kehoe. If you buy the book Flying Saucers from Outer Space by Major Donald Kehoe, a free download. Just Google it. It's a free download. Read that book. And tell me we're not just repeating the same old stuff Kehoe brought with maybe newer cases. And you mentioned MJ-12. Now, I know there's differing opinions here. And in another week or two, we'll be talking to Kevin Randall about another subject. But he has said he doesn't believe in MJ-12, whereas, of course, our friend Stan Friedman does. You are against MJ-12. Well, with all due respect to my... My uncle Stan, who I'm quite fond of and I have a great deal of respect for, but I think anybody who has taken a critical look at the MJ-12 documents and is not looking for a way to find in them a truth about Roswell would look at them and say, at best, and I mean at best, they're unproven. So let's put them, as Stan would say, in his gray basket. But no, Stan goes around and he asserts the validity of the original MJ-12 documents. And I, there's just, that's, there's no way that you can say that. I mean, that when you go into the public, beyond the sort of core group of UFO aficionados or enthusiasts who will believe anything that Stan says and any conclusions he comes to, and there are there is that group, that cult-like following that some ufologists have, beyond that group, you take that out to the average person in the street, present the evidence of the MJ-12 case, and the first question out of their mouth will be, well, what's the provenance of the documents? Where did they come from? Well, we, we don't know. Okay, move on. How they get discovered? Well, someone sent a film copy to a yeah. third party. Just suddenly sends the film. Not original documents, not photocopies, a film. And eventually... Let's call it deep throat. Let's assume the documents are real. And let's assume that there was somebody who, uh, what would it be now, almost 30 years, say 25, 27 years ago, would have sent those documents to Jamie Chandray and Bill Moore. Two interesting characters, to say the <laughs> least. <laughs> say the um, but let's say they're real and let's say somebody sent them. Well, you know, eventually Deep Throat came forward and said, hey, I was the guy behind Deep Throat in the Watergate thing. One of Stan's sort of favorite things, or one of the favorite things that a lot of people say is governments can't keep secrets. Sooner or later, this stuff will come out. It's what drives the disclosure movement. You know, Sooner or later, this will come out. Well, I would say the same thing about the MJ-12 documents. If they're real, sooner or later, the person who put them out there, like, what is he hiding from anymore? The government has declared that these documents, the FBI has declared the documents are fraudulent. So why not step forward and, and say, hey, no, I'm the guy who did it. Here's where I got him from. And I can I can tell you exactly why these documents are real. But nobody stepped forward to do that. Paul, there's a complication here. And that might be security. I mean, we learn now that, like, Paul Harvey, who died, what, close to 90 years old, famous American radio newscaster that he did spying back in World War II, but it took, what, 60, 70 years before we learned about it. True, but we know who these, um, you know, the documents are out there in the public domain. I mean, people like Stan have written books about them. We've talked about them. Everybody's talked about them on the radio. It's not like it's new material. So if you really do have the truth, if you are the guy who brought those documents forward, if you if they're real and you sent them to Chandray and more, step forward and say, hey, I'm the guy. And what are you going to do? I mean, seriously, what's the government going to do at that point? Prosecute him? Stan, I did an interview with him once for a film, and Stan said, look, I used to drive around with those documents. I'd cross state lines and all that sort of stuff. And he said, I always hoped that somebody would pull me over or, you know, the police would arrest me or something for carrying these documents. But they never did. And to which I would say, well, yeah, there's probably a perfectly good reason why they never did. You can't charge somebody with carrying fraudulent documents, uh, for Pete's sake. But 
if they're real, let the person who sent them to Chandray and more come forward and say, look, I'm the guy, here's where I got him from, and here's the real story. But that person's never come forward in 20 some odd years. And I can't see any logical reason for that anymore because the documents have been out there so long. I also see the joke in there. There's a joke in there because one of the members of this alleged MJ-12 panel is none other than astronomer Donald Menzel, a notorious UFO skeptic. And of course, they'll say, well, he had security background and he worked in intelligence. Oh, sure. So did many scientists of his era, his vintage. But on the other hand, I saw him on a TV show with John Fuller many, many years ago, a TV show on NBC in America called Open Mind. And he was asked some questions about UFOs, and the guy had like a physical meltdown on the screen. And you saw this person looking like an old man who was confused, and he was befuddled. And if he was this crack security intelligence guy, he would have had a response. He was just a guy who didn't believe it, and that was it. Well, I would say if Donald Menzel really was a member of an organization like MJ-12, then he was, you know, forget Brad Pitt or George Clooney, just award all future Oscars to Donald Menzel for everything. Any award for any acting anywhere, give it to Donald Menzel, because nothing in his record, nothing in his public statements, in his writings, nothing in anything would indicate that he was anything other than what he appeared, which was a vehement, one might almost say rabid, debunker of the UFO phenomenon, of a kind that not even Phil Class approached, even on his worst moments. I mean, Menzel set the template for debunking the UFO phenomenon, and you know, people might say, well, okay, that was the job he was given with MJ-12. And I would say, well, how stupid were these people? If they were actually going to debunk the UFO phenomenon, you wouldn't do it in such a ham-fisted way and an easily refutable way as Donald Menzel went out there and do it. I mean, the government's a little more sophisticated. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say that the government is capable of main- maintaining this vast cover-up for 60 years and having these people involved and doing it in a very sophisticated way, and somehow it never really gets out there. But at the same time, they're complete idiots. So they put a guy like Menzel out there, and, and he sounds like he's, com- even to other debunkers, Menzel sounds like he was a bit off his rocker, and you know they would shy away from him and say, Donald, you're you know, you're kind of going too far here. So it just none of none of it about MJ-12 adds up and makes sense. But here, here's here's the one-time offer from Paul Kimball to Stan Friedman and everybody else who believes in MJ-12. I will agree, even though I don't really. I will agree publicly that maybe MJ-12 is real. If you can agree publicly that maybe MJ-12 isn't real, and then let's all agree that maybe it's real, maybe it's not. Put it in the gray basket and stop talking about it and move forward with new cases or older cases that don't get the time of day. Instead of, Stan, when you do your lectures, spending 30, 40, 50, 60 minutes talking about Roswell ad infinitum, why don't you spend that time talking about the RB47 case, the Kelly Johnson case, the 1976 Tehran case with the jet fighters over, over Iran? Take the Yukon case from 1996. Talk about those cases and say there's more than just Roswell. Let's leave Roswell and MJ-12 aside. Let's just talk about the UFO phenomenon to people. Let's take the opportunity to reintroduce people to the UFO phenomenon that Hynek and Jim McDonald knew back in the 60s and 70s before it was contaminated by crash flying saucers and conspiracies and alien abductions and all the stuff that came out starting in really the late 1970s that has just dragged it down 
ever since. And the thing is here is nowadays we think the government is totally incompetent. I mean, you look at what's happening in Washington, in the United States, where nobody believes Republicans, nobody believes Democrats. They're all idiots. They're all incompetent. The government can't do anything right, but they can sure hide the truth about UFOs. Hey, we're going to talk about UFOs and science fiction, two subjects that don't always get together and don't always work well together. You've got a really interesting couple of guests for us today. Tell us about them. Sure. My very, very good friend, Nick Redfern, who um, is part of the challengers of the unknown, as I call us, uh, Nick, Greg, Bishop, myself, and the late Mac Tonys. Some other people have called us the cabal. It's, you know, we don't really hang out like that, but Every now yes, and then. he does, but he doesn't want yeah, anybody no, to know. It's true. It's like in The Simpsons with Montgomery Burns and Count Dracula and Kaiser Wilhelm II or whatever. That's what we do. We're secretly running the world. But, yeah, Nick's got a book out. Uh, well, Nick's got a zillion books out, but he has one called Science Fiction Secrets from Government Files and the Paranormal. And basically he talks about how the relationship between the paranormal and science fiction in the real world. So Nick, uh, who's always a great guest, he's one of them. And Paul Davids, who is, among other things, the producer of the Showtime movie, I think it was Showtime, on Roswell that had Kyle MacLachlan and Martin Sheen many years ago. Paul's a Hollywood producer, writer, director of a number of films, many of which don't have to do with the paranormal. But he uh, he's also written a number of books for the Lucas franchise, I think Star Wars. He is very well-versed in science fiction, and he did a film, a very good film, called The Sci-Fi Boys, which, with interviews with Peter Jackson, George Lucas, Steven Spielberg, Ray Bradbury, which basically talks about science fiction and the history thereof. And it was the winner of the 2007 Hollywood Saturn Award for Best DVD from the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror. So we've got two guys who know their science fiction, and we've got two guys who know they're paranormal. And two guys, by the way, who disagree on what Roswell was. And having just said that we shouldn't talk anymore about Roswell, we've brought two guys in and we should talk to them about Roswell. So, Saucers, the paranormal, and science fiction next up on the Paracast. And now for something completely different. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. My earliest encounter with the, as they say, dysfunctional relationship between science fiction and UFOs goes actually back to the 50s and 60s, where there was an organization called Civilian Saucer Intelligence of New York, CSI, before there was a CSI TV show. One of the really pioneer 
UFO organizations that tried to develop some kind of friendship with the science fiction community. And they were basically staunchly rejected because science fiction people didn't want to hear about UFOs. This was nonsense. We don't want to associate with those people. I tried that with a small magazine in the 1960s when I was very, very, very young. Did I say I was young? Very young. Now I'm old as the hills. But when I was very young, I tried the same thing, and it didn't work. But we noticed, and obviously a lot of people who were involved in UFO and paranormal studies are also very much involved in science fiction one way or the other. Now, Paul Davids, as someone who has lived in both worlds somewhat because of your interest in UFOs and because of the films that you've done, why is it that sci-fi and UFOs don't like each other? Well, I, I think sci-fi came first for a lot of people who are interested in space, other worlds, undreamed of possibilities. From childhood came the interest in science fiction. And along the way, some people uh, had experiences or read books or accounts or reports that uh, made them feel that there was a lot more to some of this than fiction. But the a lot of the conventional professionals, you know, authors like uh, Isaac Asimov, let's say, is one example, uh, even Ray Bradbury, they uh, they don't believe in in the reality of this stuff because they think that they or people like them made it up first. <laughs> Others claim that it was real. So there's no UFO unless they wrote about it. It's an ego thing. Yeah, yeah. If if they haven't seen it and they didn't think it up, you know, some of them feel that it couldn't be true because uh, the government would have told them. Ray Bradbury, I sat next to at lunch one day, the day that Ray Harryhausen got his star on Hollywood Boulevard. And Ray Bradbury chewed me out for having been the guy behind the movie Roswell, which gave a take on the Roswell case, which gave aid and comfort to those who feel that it was a uh, flying saucer with aliens. And uh, Ray Bradbury said to me, you know, you shouldn't be... Uh, you shouldn't be backing that kind of uh, nonsense. And I said, what, 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 <laughs> come again? Uh, you know, have you talked to the witnesses? Have you studied the reports? Have you looked into the case? And uh, his answer was essentially, uh, don't have to. Doesn't matter. Can't exist. Didn't happen. Because if it did, they would have told me, because I'm Ray Bradbury. So there you have it. Wow, that, that's a level of ego that um, you often hear sort of leveled at uh, scientists. People saying that, well, why doesn't, why does science, forget science fiction, why does science have a tenuous relationship at best with the UFO phenomenon? But what you're saying, Paul, is that science fiction authors are just as bad, if not worse, uh, when it comes to the ego thing than, say, your average scientist. Well, and also, you. You mentioned before we started this uh, tape recording that uh, Forrest J. Ackerman is one person in the uh, science fiction field that you've been familiar with for, for many years. And uh, is a very, very famous name in science fiction. I was very close to Forrest Ackerman. Uh, I met him when I was 13 years old, and I was close to him right up to the time of his death at age 92, a little over a year ago. And this was one area of disagreement between uh, Fari Ackerman and myself. He did not believe that flying saucers existed. Wouldn't go there. Uh, he loved it as science fiction. He felt it was all invention, science fiction. And 
I'm not aware that he'd studied any of the reports, that he'd read any of the books that give credibility to the field. Uh, certainly never came across uh, Richard Dolan's UFOs in the National Security State, you know, which the first volume was out before he passed away. But he had some very firm ideas on a lot of uh, subjects where he wouldn't budge. You know, I mean, he was an atheist. He was proud to be an atheist <laughs> to the hour of his death. You know, he he didn't believe in ghosts. He didn't believe in the paranormal. And we just agreed to disagree, you know. I mean, we were friends anyway, but I was a skeptic on the matter of UFOs up until I saw one in broad daylight in 1987 with my two children. And it got worse from there. <laughs> <laughs> because then some paranormal things happened to me in my life that, you know, just couldn't be explained. And I, you know, I try to be very rational, logical. I've been a skeptic all the way up to that point. And then things started to happen that, you know, changed my way of thinking. If, if those things don't come along for you, you know, you never make the transition from science fiction interests to the interests that people like Nick Redfern has who's written so many books about uh, the flying saucer phenomena and trying to get at the bottom of what we can believe, what we should believe, and what we definitely shouldn't believe. So uh, it's a different kind of different kind of person who uh, investigates, inquires, and has an open enough mind to think that it could be true versus those who dwell in the realm of fiction. Are there links, Paul, between, and moving more into the science fiction now, though, have science fiction authors, maybe we can talk a bit about science fiction authors and filmmakers, and how they've, even if they don't necessarily believe in the UFO phenomenon, how they've taken information from the UFO phenomenon and turned it into works of fiction that they've put out there. I mean, the most obvious example, to me at least, off the top of my head, is Close Encounters of the Third Kind, where you literally can but, point... But, but, Steven, but Steven Spielberg is on record that he does believe in aliens. All right, well, um, we shouldn't pick on him then. Let's pick on somebody and, else. And I want to go back to the 1950s and mention Robert Wise, who directed the original The Day the Earth Stood Still. And by the way, ladies and gentlemen, please, I'm sure none of you will disagree Avoid the Keanu Reeves remake, please. <laughs> We're talking about the original black and white version. Yeah. I know we are. I know we are. And Robert Weiss, believe in UFOs, sure. After I had my daylight disc signing in 1987, I talked to a lot of different people trying to figure out what it was, what had happened, what did I see, what should I believe about it. And Robert Wise was one of those I spoke to because I had the opportunity uh, to meet with him. Uh, we had a conversation at length uh, about the subject, and he said that he had accepted that the UFOs were real and that some of them were extraterrestrials back since the days that he was making the film. When he started to make the film, he didn't necessarily believe that. But during the course of making it, he said that so many really credible people, scientists, engineers, came to him with stories, with accounts, with reports, and he became completely convinced. But he said in the same breath that he couldn't understand why the government wasn't disclosing it, if it was true. And he felt that that was a, a stupid policy, if, if that was fact. So there's someone who um, went from science fiction and then just because of the quality of the number of people that came to him with information, uh, he became completely persuaded, even though it wasn't as a result of his own direct experience. Now, let's bring Nick Redfern in here. Nick, 
You have a book called Science Fiction Secrets from Government mm-hmm. Files and the Paranormal. And I'm looking at your product description here on your website. And it says, I love this, all the ingredients for a high strangeness stew. Mix two parts science fiction with one part high level government secrecy, add a liberal helping of the paranormal, and then let Nick Redfern heat and serve. The result is far, far stranger than anything that you could ever begin to imagine. All right, Nick, let's let you heat and serve here. Oh, I think we have, to, uh, we have to thank Patrick Wage for those words. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that Paul has a special price on that. You could use those words again, just send him a check. <laughs> exactly. I, you didn't write those yourself? I'm shocked. You have underneath that, though, because uh, Paul had mentioned Steven Spielberg. I guess I mentioned him first, and then mm-hmm. Paul mentioned uh, we talked very briefly about Spielberg. But you have here a uh, question. One of the things you talk about in your book, did the U.S. government secretly assist Steven Spielberg mm-hmm. in the production of his groundbreaking science fiction movies, Close Encounters of the Third Kind and E.T. the Extraterrestrial? Um, mm-hmm. Did they? Let's ask you about well, that you first. Know, yeah, I mean, one thing I sort of preface that with, Paul, is I suppose my my exposure and involvement with science fiction is very different to many other people in the sense, rather ironically for someone who's written a book about the subject, I'm not that interested in science fiction per se. But what is what has fascinated me for a long time is the way in which, or the allegations at least, suggesting that the world of science fiction has been like, manipulated or there's been a, a kind of clandestine two-way process between elements of the official world and the world of science fiction to present ufological themes in a fictional context that secretly behind the the scenes may be very real. Now, that doesn't mean they are. It means that in the book, you know, I addressed whether or not these stories were genuine. Um, Now, as far as, you know, the whole issue of Close Encounters and E.T. is concerned, there's been a great deal of discussion, legend, rumor, etc., etc., within the UFO research arena for many years as to whether or not there was some sort of subtle pushing and prodding, you know, by government agencies to get certain archetypal themes out, and that that may, that may have been done with close encounters in ET. The idea that there's been some sort of face-to-face interaction, you know, between extraterrestrials and us, so to speak. Now, of course, this is a very controversial theory, and I'll be the first to admit that, you know, thus far at least, we don't have hard evidence of that. But in terms of the material that I published in the book, one of the most interesting things I found is that, or a lot of people have commented on, I should say, but that I commented on in my book as well, was this issue of how in June 1982, a special screening was made at the White House of E.T., where Reagan and various members of his staff were, were present for the for the showing, and altogether there's somewhere in the region of 36 guests, 37 guests. So it was you know it was almost like a, I guess it wasn't just a film showing. It was almost like an event. Now, what a lot of people don't realise is that only 24 hours after um, Reagan watched ET and supposedly at least made an aside to Spielberg that there were only a certain number of people in the room who knew how real it allegedly was. Only 24 hours after he allegedly made that statement, what we do know for absolutely 100% certainty is on the following morning, Reagan received a briefing on the then current and future plans from the US, on, for the U.S. space program, 
What's interesting is that the briefing actually wasn't made by NASA. It was made by representatives of the National Security Council. And those documents are now being declassified showing that. But that at least the briefing went ahead. We don't actually know what was in the briefing completely to this day. So I find that interesting that Spielberg, his film, E.T., shown to the president, Reagan expresses a lot of interest, and then 24 hours later, he's, you know, briefed on outer space operations, etc., by none other than the National Security Council. So it's kind of things like that I've touched upon to try and, you know, address these areas of whether or not science fiction and ufology at an official level have, have crossed paths, if you like. Picture this, you're on the phone with a client or colleague trying to explain something visual, a PowerPoint, a keynote presentation, a website, but it's frustrating because they can't see what you're talking about. The solution? Good news. They can if you invite them to an online meeting using GoToMeeting. Then they can see your computer desktop on their computer screen so you can show them what you're talking about. I use GoToMeeting all the time to collaborate with colleagues and with clients. You can try GoToMeeting free for 30 days, but you must visit GoToMeeting slash podcasts. That's GoToMeeting.com slash podcasts for free 30-day trial hi this is don ecker and you are tuned into the paracast let me tell you what you're going to hear stuff here that you probably won't hear anywhere else hear that george snorri we're crossing the paths of paul davis and nicholas redfern our special co-host is paul kimball Paul, you were up with a question, right? Yeah, I was just going to say, Nick, so what are your conclusions? We can talk about some particular things in your yes. book, um, but what are your conclusions on the overall issue or question of is there a relationship between the government and the science fiction world? Did the government, has the government used science fiction to perhaps seed or control the conversation or, or however you want to look at it about the UFO phenomenon in particular or perhaps even the paranormal in general? Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you can look at it sort of two ways, actually, Paul. You know, I don't for one minute believe there is anything as simplistic hidden in the government as like a, a project science fiction along the lines of a project blue book. You know, I don't believe there is a particular group whose, whose role it is to seed UFO facts into the realm of science fiction. But if you ask me, do I think it's possible that it may have been done on occasion, I do think that has happened. And also what I think has happened is that government agencies have been inspired by science fiction to embark on clandestine projects. Now, for example, one of the chapters I have in the book uh, deals with the way in which the Air Force um, contracted out a project to determine if um, teleportation of the type, I guess, most successfully shown in Star Trek and least successfully shown in The Fly, you know, could, could be achieved or couldn't be achieved. You know, and ask the question, would the Air Force actually looked into this if in a fictional format in The Fly and in Star Trek teleportation hadn't been discussed? And I actually think you know, the Air Force may well not have looked into it, you know, so in other words, they were inspired by it. Same with, uh, for example, the former Soviet Premier, Joseph Stalin. He was a very big fan of H.G. Wells's science fiction, and particularly of the, the island of Dr. Moreau, where you have this sort of crazed doctor doing, you know, like the 19th century equivalent of gene splicing, trying to cross humans with apes and all sorts of animals to make 
manimals, as they became known. And the whole scenario presented in Wells' book was actually something that Stalin tried to replicate with a, a project, a, a very shortly project, to try and crossbreed humans and apes to create like an ultimate superhuman super soldier, which of course failed disastrously and never, disastrously never worked. So we certainly know that government agencies have been inspired by science fiction. Now, you know, certainly when it comes to the other way around, that's, I guess, the more controversial area. One of the stories I tell in the book is about a late 1940s and early 50s filmmaker named Michael Conrad, who wrote a wrote, directed and starred in a very early and not particularly good science fiction film called The Flying Saucer. In this particular film, Conrad plays um, a guy who goes up to um, Alaska with a beautiful FBI agent and... Um, Always a beautiful FBI agent. <laughs> exactly. And nothing's changed. And um, they investigate flying saucer sightings in Alaska. Now, it so happens, curiously enough, that... Michael Conrad actually became the subject of an extensive Air Force file. And the reason being that at the very same time that Conrad's film was talking about flying saucers in Alaska in a fictional setting, the Air Force was actually, and ironically, investigating real sightings of UFOs in Alaska, some of which paralleled eerily closely the stories that Conrad was telling. And there was actually speculation within the Air Force that somebody on the inside was leaking information on some of the Project Grudge uh, and then the, the later Blue Book reports on, on sightings in Alaska, that it was somehow filtering down to Conrad and questions were asked, well, who's doing this and what's the motivation? You know, so you could actually begin to wonder, was somebody on the inside subtly releasing these stories to him, knowing that he was making this film and the setting was Alaska? and to determine, you know, public reaction. It's, it's a theory, but it's, you know, it's an intriguing theory, albeit one that we don't have hard definitive facts for. So I've not kind of come down, you know, forcefully on one way or the other because we don't have the evidence to do that. What we do have are a lot of sort of suggestive tangents that push us in that direction, and I think that's sort of the best we can say right now. One of the things I noticed was the original film, Dave Earth Stood Still, influenced the contactees, the aliens came in a silvery uniform. They were warning us of the consequences of our practice of war and nuclear weapons. They spoke colloquial English. They solved our equations for us. Oh, yeah, well, especially solving the equations. That's it, man. But the, we ought to bring up the Howard Hawks film. Again, I think from 1950, 51, The Thing from Another World. Yes. Often called The Thing, the first one, not the John Carpenter remake, but because uh, that was set in the Arctic. I don't know if it was specifically Alaska. It, it was essentially the Roswell story, three years after the Roswell incident, but set in the frozen north instead of set in the desert. But it was the crash of a flying saucer uh, with one survivor, and you had the clash there between the news media and the military, where the news media was very anxious to tell the story to the world, and the military stop that so uh you know that was that was indicative of uh you know what had been in the news what was going on it was just set in another location the the alaska interest you know continues through the decades up to the very recent film called the fourth kind which universal pictures released about uh, abduction uh set in alaska and you know promoted with a, a quasi real aura blair witch style 
of things that were, you know, purportedly true, but, uh, you know, just really made to seem that way for, for, for effect, for the benefit of the audience, as opposed to, uh, I think, uh, you know, anything that was really happening in Alaska. But you certainly had incredible things happening in Alaska that uh, inspired that, one of which would have been the 1986 Japan Airlines flight off uh, Anchorage, Alaska, flight 1628, I think it was, which uh, in which Captain Tarauchi and his crew sighted an absolutely massive mothership that they described as two times the size of uh, an aircraft carrier with saucers coming and going from it and playing cat and mouse with their airplane. And uh, this was all, you know, very thoroughly uh, documented with interviews with the crew who made drawings. They counted the whole thing. There were radar returns. Some of this all happened with live communication that was released by the FAA to the general public if you wanted to order it. So uh, that was one of many, many indications. There have been abduction reports from Alaska. There was the... Uh, mysterious disappearance of, I think, a U.S. senator whose plane was never found again uh, and whose at least one of his sons now speaks at UFO conferences, Senator Begich. I think I have those facts, right? Correct me, Nick, if I've got it wrong. But the overlap, the overlap is everywhere to be found between the fiction that is sold to the public for a profit, it's a commercial enterprise, Science fiction is a business of billions of dollars a year, and it's one of America's biggest exports to the world. Sell as many of our cars to the rest of the world now as we do our science fiction films. Look at Avatar. It's, you know, it passed $2 billion of worldwide gross in just a couple of months since its release. As a filmmaker, I look at a film like Avatar and say, I'll take 0.5% of their worldwide oh, gross. Oh, well, point, point, don't, don't be greedy. 0. 0.0005 would <laughs> 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 buy you a, a mansion in Malibu. Well, uh, I have so, 0.002, I'll take that. Well, we'll yes. have to get our attorneys to talk about that again. But since I don't own Avatar... I, I only own a um, science fiction documentary known as The Sci-Fi Boys, which uh, explored the origins of movie science fiction through interviews with many of the top people in the field, Academy Award winners, and also in part took a look at Hollywood's portrayal of aliens. And that part of the film was serious enough that the film was honored with one of the EB Awards at the International UFO Congress. And that uh, stands for Extraterrestrial Biological Entity. Uh, Paul Kimball, I, I think, I know you've entered your films there. Didn't you win one of those EB Awards for one of the UFO films? I have three, in fact, although two of them are on display at the Aztec City Library in Aztec, New Mexico. But I have one staring at me right now. They're they're quite cute. You you handed it to me, actually. You were the presenter and chair of the judge. I was, and I think that that one, was that your film about the 10 best cases? It was, uh, yeah, UFO. best evidence. I um, mean, it was the yeah. Gene and I were talking about this in our sort of preamble, and the the question of Gene raised to me whether we should just leave all the old historical cases behind and concentrate more on investigating new cases. And my answer to him, especially having done a film called Best Evidence, Top 10 UFO Sightings, where basically you're dealing with historical cases, is no, there's still much that we can learn 
from not only how those cases were investigated, mistakes made or not made, but from the cases themselves. There's still a raft of cases in the public domain from Project Blue Book that people haven't looked at yet. I mean, they just haven't been gone through by UFO researchers. So who knows what people are going to find in there. One of those cases, the 1953 Kelly Johnson sighting that uh, was in my film, I think it was the number six Is that the, Kelly, the Hopkinsville, Kentucky? No, it was Kelly John Santa Barbara, actually. Uh, Kelly Johnson, the designer of the U-2 uh, spy plane, the SR-71, working for Lockheed at the time, he saw a UFO from his porch with his wife um, in Agora, California, at the same time as a crew of his top test pilots and engineers were flying over Santa Barbara Channel and sighted the exact same thing. So they all kind of show up at work the next day and say, hey, guess what I saw yesterday? Um, what would you see? And, you know, they realized they were looking at the exact same thing. And the Air Force, this is one of my favorite things, the United States Air Force said their official explanation after they investigated it was that these people saw a lenticular cloud and one of their all-time favorites. And mm -hmm. our film, the narration in the film says, well, you know, any competent government would have fired these people immediately if they couldn't tell the difference between a structured craft and a lenticular cloud. And yet Kelly Johnson went on designing some of the most top-secret, high-performance aircraft in the history of the human race, in fact, despite the fact that in 1953 he'd seen a UFO over Santa Barbara Channel. Well, you know so what? That's it. That's it right there. If you see a lenticular cloud, ladies and gentlemen, that qualifies you to do really deep-level scientific research and engineering. Well, yeah. The truth is lenticular clouds are often mistaken for UFOs, so it's it's not completely bogus. The, but the idea that Kelly Johnson and some of his top personnel at a different location seeing the same thing at the same time, all of whom saying it was a structured craft, would mistake that for a lenticular cloud, that doesn't just beg your belief. That is clearly an explanation that the Air Force just cooked up because they didn't want to talk about it anymore. Um, but, Paul, I, going back to the Howard Hawks film, looking at these things, the Hawks film came out during the time of the, the House Committee on Un-American Activities, the McCarthy, McCarthy thing. Wasn't it before that, actually? Because I think that I'm quite certain that the Hawks film was 1950, I three think years after Roswell. I think and, and the probably... House of Un-American Activities was about 1952, I think, wasn't it? I think it pre the the anti-communist sort of thing was certainly going on in the latter years of the Truman administration. So whether HUAC was actually underway, House Committee on Un-American Activities. I'll check that on the break. Okay, by the way, the yeah. official date from the Internet Movie Database for The Thing from Another World is 1951. Okay, right. which means it was probably shot in 1950 and written or even earlier, I suppose. That's right. Um, and the alien was played by Marshall Dillon. Oh, very nice. But isn't it possible? I mean, in this was it Marshall Dillon? Was it was it? It wasn't James Arness. It was James Arness. Yes, James Arness played the thing, and we consider that in light of the death of his younger brother Peter Graves from Mission Impossible. Yeah, that was his first role. I think he didn't want to be remembered for that role, though. Um, yeah, just like Boris Karloff didn't want to be remembered for Frankenstein. A lot of good that did him, right? <laughs> My only thing about it would be that I think it came out around that time. Certainly, there was the anti-communist hysteria. A lot of the film historians and people in the film industry that I've talked to would look at that film as being a metaphor, as science fiction often is for things that are going on in our own world. Going back to the Roswell case, you could say, yes, Roswell, but you could probably say a case, a flat, crash flying saucer case that was much more well-known at that time, the Aztec 
case. Right. Uh, because of Frank Scully's book, which, you know, there were, literally there was a book written on it, a lot of publicity about it. Um, it's possible that that... A lot, a lot of people said that that was a smokescreen for the... Or, 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 did he specifically say Aztec in, in his book, Scully? Did yeah. he call it Aztec? Or? It's been a couple yeah. of years since I've read the Aztec book, but yes, I believe he did, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. This is the Paracast. You never know what's going to happen next. We have so, Paul Davids, and we have Nicholas Redfern, and our co-host is Paul Kimball. By the way, The Thing was originally based on a novel, or short story, rather, from John W. Campbell, Jr., very famous in the science fiction field as an author, called, called Who, Who Goes, Goes There? there? <laughs> That's it. Right. You two guys know way too much about, <laughs> about these things. It's or, actually, or we're, we're both things, but we've never met, but we're both things from different worlds. Let me ask you, Paul, though, picking up on Nick's point and, and what Nick and I were talking about, uh, the question of do you think that the government or elements within the government have used science fiction to seed ideas about our assuming, and as you, I think you know, I'm an agnostic on the question of extraterrestrial visitation, um, a hopeful agnostic, but assuming that extraterrestrials are visiting here and assuming that the government knows it, are they using, do you think, would it make sense for them to use science fiction as a way of seeding, of preparing the population, for instance, for the eventual revelation that maybe we do have friends uh, from outer space that are here? And how might that tie in to something else that happened in the early 1950s, the Robertson panel, where they got together and said, on the one hand, we need to debunk these UFO reports, but also talked about using the media to control how UFO. Yeah, they specifically mentioned the Walt, the Walt Disney Company is a company that might be helpful in yeah. debunking the idea. Might those companies also have been helpful in spreading information that maybe they wanted us to know um, in order to prepare us? So I'm just wondering what your thoughts on that might be. I think that's probably true, that uh, ideas have been seeded, that uh, very uh, enthusiastic people who have classified information have approached it uh, as, you know, in terms of fiction for, for people within the Hollywood community or have, you know, in some cases leaked things that had great repercussions. I mean, take the MJ-12 document, for example. Now, without even needing to get into a debate about whether uh, MJ-12 is factual or whether it's fiction, the fact that that document was leaked in about 19, late 1980s, maybe 88. Uh, it was released in the late 80s. It was leaked to Chandra and more, I think, in 83. Um, it was in early leaked, the 80s. You know, leaked, leaked in a way that certainly it had every appearance of complete reality about it. 
And then the researchers took it from there. And some tore it apart and said, it holds up, it's true. Like someone who's related to you, Paul Kimball, and that would be uh, Stan Friedman. Yes. And there's others who, um, like Kevin Randall, who uh, dismissed it. There's others who felt that it was based on real documents, but had been rewritten and presented in a way that it could be discredited, but that it was real information being put out there. Regardless of whatever of those is true, the fact that that document was leaked under circumstances where a lot of people believed it was true for a long time really influenced Hollywood in a major way. And some examples would be the X-Files, the television series, that was almost based on the MJ-12 document. Uh, the film that I was executive producer of and co-wrote called Roswell, it came out in 1994 on Showtime, and it presented the Roswell case as, as we felt the testimony from the military people were there had, had, had presented it, those who said that it, it was really extraterrestrial contact. But the MJ-12 documents influenced us massively. And the whole last part of that film, where we have Martin Sheen as an informant who might be a disinformer, we don't know. We never say. He tells some really interesting things. He might be spinning stories. We never answer that question for the viewer, but we use him as a, as a tool, as a mouthpiece, to get out the sort of revised history of the last 50 years as it's presented in the MJ-12 documents. Namely, that there was a crash at Roswell, extraterrestrial hardware was recovered, one of the aliens was alive, there was communication with that alien, that the, the death of Secretary Forrestal was related to his knowledge of these secrets that he was obliged to keep, and it goes on and on and on and on. And then it wasn't just our film, but it shows up again in Independence Day, where and in Steven Spielberg's uh, Taken. And Dark Skies, I think, also uh, used this material. So one little document went a long way to inspire Hollywood to take the information and package it in a commercial form and get it out there in a way in which everyone in the, in the public becomes familiar with it. How many people out there are there today, do you think, who have never heard of Area 51? Couldn't they be in the minority? Certainly in North America they would. Um, I'm pretty sure that in, you know, Burundi, there, there might not be all that many people who know of Area 51. Right. But, uh, you right. know, in the Western world, I think certainly in the English-speaking Western world, absolutely. But it's interesting. I, I think you're probably right that much of it, what we now have, say, in science fiction in the last 20 years, certainly the conspiracy-oriented stuff, things like The X-Files, which was massively influential, um, can trace, if not directly to Majestic 12, certainly to things like that. Um, they, they borrowed heavily from what was going on in the real world. Whether the real, you know, with us, whether the real world was actually real or not is largely irrelevant to the question of did it inspire um, the people in Hollywood or not, but it it strikes me it's a, it's an interesting it's interesting for two reasons. One, it shows how fast a meme can spread and influence things, and two, you're left with the question of is the, the tail wagging the dog or the dog wagging the tail? So, is are these things real? You're still left with the question of whether these things are real or not, and that's that's what makes it interesting to me, I suppose. Well, going uh, back to, to to your your key question of what kinds of things have influenced Hollywood to go in this direction? 
And again, going back to the 1950s, with someone who I knew who I can talk about, that would be producer-director George Powell, who directed, um, who produced uh, uh, Destination Moon and When Worlds Collide, The Conquest of Space, and War of the Worlds. And, you know, he, he got input from Werner von Braun and Willie Lay. I think that uh, with his War of the Worlds, which had aliens in it, the other films, I don't, they, they didn't uh, show you the aliens. Although, certainly when worlds collide, suggested that there are other Earth-like worlds that we can get to, uh, and maybe they can get to us. But um, I've always been really intrigued by one little clue in George Powell's 1953 movie, War of the Worlds, and it's this. In the film, Gene Barry, with co-star Anne Robinson, they take refuge in a uh, in a farmhouse, an isolated area, and a one of the Martian saucers crashes, actually into that farmhouse, and they see one of the aliens who comes into the farmhouse, and they're absolutely terrified. They fly back to civilization, and report what happened. And what they say is that uh, this uh, saucer crash into the farmhouse happened in Corona. Huh. Now, they were referring to Corona, California. But why would the scriptwriter and George Powell, uh, who had approval over that script, have slipped in that that incident happened in Corona? They could have named anywhere in Southern California. And Corona, of course, is where the Roswell incident happened corona new mexico so ask yourself if that was deliberate you know that that may give you the answer to your whole question i think it was even though the roswell incident was buried at that point it had been killed it was a few years later it was a weather balloon you know no one was talking about it then still it slips into the movie that the flying saucer that crashes into the farmhouses at corona that's that's assuming that you accept that Corona is actually the crash point for whatever happened to Roswell. That stands um, place. I I know that other researchers like Kevin. Well, Rand- but that was that was even at the time it was really really widely publicized. The Brazel Ranch um, is Corona, not Roswell. It's seventy right, miles yeah. from Roswell. It's not really yeah, the Roswell. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the the what was publicized at the time, the Brazel Ranch. Gotcha. So. Uh, uh, and there there's go. a wonderful there's a wonderful bar in Corona too. It's called Road to Hell. That's the only bar in town. I've I've actually been there. Very mm. charming old man behind the counter with a shotgun. So Ooh, oh, well, of course, this sounds like the place you'd kind of visit. I think. Yeah, but you know, the one thing is here is that wouldn't it also be true that a scriptwriter is going to take pop culture and embed it into the films to make it seem more realistic. I mean, obviously, that's why in Independence Day, the aliens are evil locusts who want to take us over, but they have Area 51, they talk about government secrecy and all this stuff because they're trying to ground it in a basis of fact before they go off in fiction. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that it was inspired by fact, not ripped from the headlines, as they say on Law & Order. Right. Yeah, it's, it, it incorporates what was the po- popular culture at that time, which wasn't necessarily the popular culture 10 years before that. Because I, I, I tell you, when we were making the film Roswell, uh, Showtime didn't want us to use that title 
because they said it meant nothing. No one has heard of Roswell. No one knows what that means. They don't, you know, unless you live in New Mexico and you've heard of the city, people don't know that city. That was the argument given. And we were asked to come up with some other title for it, come up with a list, things that they could choose from. And then finally, uh, you know, we beat them down and they, they agreed to the title that we wanted to just call it Roswell. Because for me, it's like if you were to just call a film Chernobyl. You know, it's a place, but it's a place that has become a symbol for a specific issue. Yes. And that's what happened to the town of Roswell. And again, we're not talking true or false. We're not talking uh, reality or illusion. We're just talking about what happened in terms of the popular culture. People hadn't heard of it. And then by 1995, I would say, when the uh, Air Force was coming out with its reports denying the Roswell incident again, um, people did know. You know, there were political cartoons about it uh, in the paper, and uh, Clinton was commenting on it. You know, why? How did it, how did it get to that point with an incident that had, at, at that stage had happened, you know, 45 years ago. You look at that, get the answer to that question, and uh, I think that's, I think there's a lot of clues there. Well, and we'll talk a little later um, about body snatchers in the desert, and we'll we'll go mano y mano, Paul Davids versus Nick Redfern on, on what actually might have happened in the, the desert uh, outside, 70 miles outside of, of Roswell. I have I, a boxing gloves, by the way, Paul. Perfect. Here you go. Here's, my, here's the papers they have to sign to resolve us of liability. Before we go well, on, I'm really good way, at duck and cover. <laughs> or cover and duck, depending on your point of view. Nick, also, before we split for hour number one, can you tell our listeners where to learn more of the things that you do and what books you have out recently or coming out in the near future? Um, well, right now, the, the most recent book I have out is Contactees, which is a study of the whole contactee movement, predominantly of the 1950s, people like Adamski, Van Tassel, Daniel Fry, and addresses their claims and also the various theories that have been put forward to explain the, the whole Space Brother movement, if you like. And so it's very much like a historical look back at the subject, but you know, trying to update it in terms of understanding what was going on, the, the differing theories. Were they meeting literal aliens? Is it possible that they were implanted in the subject to try and make it look ridiculous? Was it the government, you know, using these people? All manner of different theories. I even inter interviewed Mactonis about his crypto-terrestrial theory about indigenous humanoids rather than aliens. So, so it's, it, it basically looks at... Um, you know, the whole range of things. And I also have a, a new book coming out with anomalous books in a few months called Final Events, which actually deals with a, a like a think tank organization in the Department of Defense that looked at the UFO subject for a number of years um, and actually concluded uh, that it had nothing to do with aliens, but was kind of like a, like a demonic deception. That, that was their literal conclusion. But many of them were fundamentalist Christians. So as I point out in the book, you know, you have to look at the issue of whether or not that clouded or influenced their beliefs. But it, it's a sort of very disturbing theory about a, a group within the government that was given extensive funding to look into the idea that we're facing a final battle and, you know, like Armageddon, and that these entities 
are spiritual, you know, a deception, if you like. And it's a very controversial and weird story. Hopefully mm. that'll be out By the way, Nick, month. where can we go in terms of your website? Uh, that's nickredfern.com. People can learn about, you know, what I'm up to, lectures, conferences, latest news, interviews I've done with people, that sort of thing. And we'll discuss where to find Paul Davids, if you need him. <laughs> Back well, with for me, yes. that would be pauldavids.com, and it's not Davis. It has another D in there. It's David, plural, pauldavids.com. Uh, also, uh, I made a film called Jesus in India that has received a lot of notoriety, um, and I direct your listeners to the website to find out about that controversy, and that's jesusinindiathemovie.com. I want to ask you about that in the second segment, okay. uh, Paul. Talk about that a little bit, too. Paul Davids, Nicholas Redfern with co-host Paul Kimball coming up on the other side of the Paracast. Hey, neighbors, would you like to see the Paracast live long and prosper? Well, if you know of anyone who wants to advertise their products or services on the Paracast, have them contact us directly. Tell them to write to sales at theparacast.com. That's sales at theparacast.com. And we'll also accept your donations by PayPal. Send your PayPal donation to the same address, sales at theparacast.com. That's sales at theparacast.com. And thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietney. Part two of the Paracast featuring our co-host Paul Kimball introducing Paul Davids to our show, filmmaker and science fiction writer. He's written some stuff for Lucas featuring Star Wars characters. Check them out. I guess at Amazon Books will find those books? Yes. Okay. I co-wrote with my wife six Star Wars sequel novels. And uh, they were published first by Bantam, and then Barnes & Noble put out a hardback edition. But we started with The Glove of Darth Vader and uh, The Lost City of the Jedi and uh, on and on up to Prophets of the Dark Side. That was in the early 90s, and uh, they were you know, very, very popular. Lucasfilm sponsored them. Hey, you can't miss with that. Nicholas Redfern, of course, author of a number of books about UFOs and the paranormal, and we've been talking about the relationship between science fiction and the paranormal. Maybe some of those science fiction works have, to some part, influenced or were influenced by real mysteries. Paul, you were about to start with a question. Sure, Nick. Going back to your book, um, Science Fiction Secrets from Government Files and the Paranormal, and I won't read the introduction again, but I do love it, where it says, then let Nick Redfern heat and serve. Um, that Patrick deserves a gold medal for that. Good old Patrick. Good yes, quite. You, one of the things that it talks about on your blurb is because we were talking about the X-Files and how hugely influential it was in the 1990s. How did the X-Files spin-off series, The Lone Gunman, which was somewhat less successful and influential, but still, you write, how did that series anticipate months in advance the terrible tragedy of 9-11? How did it? Uh, talk a bit about that and what the links there might be. This is sort of a very weird story. You know, you don't have to subscribe, as I know you don't, to, you know, any conspiracy theories concerning 9-11 
to to realize that it is a very weird story. What happened was that in in the X-Files, the Mulder and Scully would often get help from these three guys known as the Lone Gunman. And there were Frohiki, Byers and Langley, like this sort of geek-like trio that would, you know, be full-on conspiracy theorists. And, you know, such was their sort of, I guess, appeal in the show that they... They got the ultimate accolade, which was like their own series, which only unfortunately lasted for one series. And it began, it started on March the 4th, 2001. That's when the first episode aired. Now, what was interesting about the, the first episode is that it deals with an attempt or a, an actual hijacking of a Bo, Boeing 727 passenger aircraft which is actually hijacked electronically via a computer hacker. And the plan is to fly the 727 into one of the World Trade Centers and blame it on a Middle Eastern dictator who, to quote the episode, is begging to be smart-bombed. Now, in the program, of course, at the last minute, as you might expect, the lone gunmen managed to hack into the computer hacker system and divert the plane away from the World Trade Center. Rather ironically, uh, a word I've used a couple of times already, but the, when they were filming the episode, the, um, the producers of the show actually had permission to use a helicopter to fly over Manhattan directly towards the World Trade Center to get background footage for that particular episode. You know, so you have this scenario of somebody, basically in the story, it's like a cabal within the U.S. government who want to invade the Middle East and want justification for doing it. So they decide to hijack a plane and fly it into the World Trade Center, which, of course, you know, is a scenario that's being presented as an allegedly real scenario for the events of 9-11. Now, as I said, you don't need to subscribe to those conspiracy theories to realize that it's sort of bizarre that only six, more, six months before 9-11 occurred, a television sci-fi drama presented that entire scenario. And, and what I find interesting is, you know, the, the, the very fact that in mainstream documentaries, TV shows, discussions, etc., about the events of 9-11, the Lone Gunman episode, that was the name of the series, The Lone Gunman, it never actually gets brought up. Now, you might think that, well, people think it's dumbing it down to bring that into it. But on the other hand, the sheer uncanny parallels, as I said, you don't have to subscribe to it, but the sheer uncanny parallels between what did happen and what was presented in the show six months before 9-11 happened you know, is worthy of comments at the very least. So. I, w I would say that a couple of the, the takeaway from that is a couple of things. One, if we ever catch Osama bin Laden, we should take a look at his video collection to see if he has, <laughs> you know, the Lone Gunman box set. Two, we might want to see if Dick Cheney has the Lone Gunman box set. <laughs> and uh, and three, the uh, security. Is there a box set? <laughs> I, somehow, I, somehow I doubt it. You know, they, that one gets suppressed if they put the box set together. Well, I think it gets they leave suppressed. that one out. For commercial reasons, I think it ran for maybe 10 or 12 episodes. But I suppose mm -hmm. the third thing we should take away from it is maybe you should hire the writers from The Lone Gunman and CIA and the FBI should hire them because yeah. those are the, shouldn't those be the kinds of things that the security agency, agencies should be coming up with as scenarios and saying, hey, we should we should figure out a plan yeah. to deal with this in case somebody tries this. Um, it well, shouldn't be science fiction. Aside, not that it's a subject we should joke about, but you know, I think there are there is evidence or there have been cases where you know, that 
intelligence agencies have, as I said, been inspired by sci-fi scenarios. Now, it could be, you know, just some horrible coincidence. I, but, you know, when you talk in a joking sense about who's got what in their video collections, who's to say anything in the fictional world might inspire someone in the real world? You know, we don't know. You know, I, I, just, I do find it very intriguing, the, the, the very close similarities between, you know, the two scenarios. Conversely, if you want to get really uh, conspiratorial, you can imagine a situation where someone on the inside is hearing all kinds of different plots that are being considered and is so horrified by one himself that he leaks it. You were talking about leaking it to people in Hollywood, but deliberately leaks it to a writer and says, hey, what about this one? To out the idea in hopes of then making it impossible for somebody to follow that path. Mm -hmm. Just a, well, just a thought. It's kind of the reverse of what you were yeah. suggesting. Yeah. I mean, what's interesting, this isn't directly connected with The Lone Gunman, but The Lone Gunman was a spin-off from um, The X-Files. Now, I'm sure a lot of people listening to this show will have heard of Richard Doty, who was someone who was a you know a big player in the UFO scene uh, when he worked with the U.S. Air Force in the 1980s. And Doty actually wrote the screenplay for one particular episode of The X-Files called The Blessing Way, which was aired in 1995. And he actually also appeared in two episodes, one called Anasazi and the other one called Paperclip. So, you know, the, there are crossovers between the UFO subject and The X-Files. Yeah, for sure. I didn't. Doty actually wrote an episode of the uh, of the X Files. I didn't know. I didn't know that. This is um, rather screenplay. Uh, this is actually. I'm, I'm quoting Greg Bishop's um, Project Beta now. Greg, this is Greg's actual words. Years after his AFOSI involvement, Doty's career reached an apotheosis of sorts when he was actually invited to become a consultant for the X-Files, a position he says he held from 94 to 96. In time, he also wrote the screenplay for an episode, The Blessing Way, which aired on September 22, 1995, although producer Chris Carter received writing credit. Doty also appeared as an extra in two episodes, Anna which aired on May 19, 1995, and Paperclip shown on September 29, of that year. He tried to write another, but says that it was killed by a government agency, that he was required to run everything past before turning any of it into production. End of quote from Greg. So I'm quoting Greg's words on, on what he learned. So. so basically, if we have to yell at somebody, it's Greg. <laughs> yes, exactly. The great yeah, no, thing I, about... I want to yeah, just stress that, you know, Greg did the research on this, but I find it interesting that the world of the X-Files, you know, had this kind of to and fro back and forth with the official world as well. So, And the Lone Gunman was a spin-off from the X-Files. You know, whenever any Richard Doty story comes up, I know you guys can't see me right now, but I can't help but smile. And it, it's it's not always a good smile, but, you, you know, I would check, I would interview everybody involved just to make sure that he actually, anything that he says he did, he actually did. I'd want to see the episode where he walks across the screen before I would believe that Richard Doty was actually there. One other thing I no, wanted I to ask... No, yeah, I yeah, no, I, I just wanted to stress, I've got Greg's book in front of me here, and, it, you know, when we were sort of planning this episode, I thought, I'll try and dig out what I can. I've got Project Bait in front of me, and, you know, I'm presuming that, you know, checks were made. You know that Greg can't be trusted because he's a disinformation <laughs> agent himself, so, um, as are we all, I suppose. There's one other thing I wanted to ask you about, Nick, uh, about your particular, your book in particular, mm -hmm. a name that 
certainly would be familiar to you, Gene, and, uh, and old-time flying saucers, but should be probably more familiar to people today. And that's Ray Palmer. You've got a chapter on Ray Palmer in your book, right, Nick? Mm. Perhaps you can tie that in a bit. But briefly, you know, the idea, the um, Palmer's, the Shaver mystery, all that sort of stuff, yeah. the Daros, and how that ties into sort of, has Mac resurrected that with the crypto-terrestrials? And, mm. and talk a bit about those stories, science fiction, and how that might relate to the UFO phenomenon. Is there a secret UFO agenda? Do strange creatures from the darkest corners of the mind roam the earth? Is there evidence for mind control, time travel, or devious government conspiracies? Find out the inside scoop on the latest conspiracies, paranormal activity, and Freudian phenomena when you subscribe to Tim Beckley's Conspiracy Journal. It's jam-packed with stories, special book and DVD promotions, and the best news, it's absolutely free, sent right to your mailbox. Plus, a bonus free email newsletter sent out every Friday. Simply send an email with your name and address to MrUFO at WebTV.net. That's MrUFO at WebTV.net. Find out what they don't want you to know. Hi, this is Nick Pope. You're listening to the Paracast. We have Nicholas Redfern and Paul Davids, and Paul Kimball is our special guest host. And if anyone cares, this ages me. I knew Richard Shaver very well. I knew Ray Palmer. Not so well, but I actually met him once or twice, talked to him on the phone, got him on radio shows where he was interviewed on the subject. This was the last few years before he died in the 1970s. With that preamble, Nicholas Redfern, tell us about that. Alrighty. Palmer, he was actually born a hundred years ago this year. We had a, when he was a child, he developed a deep interest in science fiction and eventually um, became the editor of Amazing Stories, one of, the, one of the more popular science fiction magazines of the 1930s. Um, one of the things that surfaced in the 1940s um, to Palmer from this guy Richard Shaver was like a series of fantastic stories, tales, ramblings, if you like, concerning um, an alleged highly advanced but very ancient race of indigenous humanoids that had gone underground a long, long time ago and that lived amongst us and that surfaced from time to time. In other words, you know, they, they were sort of precursors for the UFO phenomenon that he was sort of perceiving as not being alien but being evidence of a very ancient terrestrial society that you know, was forced underground by this infestation known as a human race. And the, the whole shave of mystery, I mean, generated a, a massive cult following, literally massive, which to an extent still continues to this day. Now, Palmer um, was someone who sort of shifted effortlessly between the worlds of science fiction and ufology because he actually published and co-wrote none other than Kenneth Arnold's book, The Coming of the, of the Sources, which talked about Kenneth Arnold's flying saucer sighting over Mount Rainier. He also published uh, Fate magazine, didn't he? Yeah, published Fate magazine. Right, so he and Curtis Fuller created Fate before Palmer dissolved yeah. the relationship later on. Correct, yes. So in other words, you have this person who was one of the most formative people within science fiction in the 30s and 40s, and who arguably, we may never have heard of Kenneth Arnold's sighting, you know, in, in terms of its perpetuation, had Palmer not published Arnold's book. And I actually got hold of Palmer's FBI file, 
um, which talks about his involvement in a very weird story, that of Maury Island, when some sort of UFO, allegedly at least, exploded over um, Tacoma, uh, harbour at Tacoma in Washington State in the summer of 47. A very weird story involving a man named Fred Chrisman, who was also linked to the Kennedy assassination of all things years later. So in other words, Palmer was someone who moved in very weird circles. Now, to kind of sort of just quickly go on from there, Palmer was obviously someone who was, was linked with his crashed UFO story at Tacoma, which was actually investigated by Kenneth Arnold. Now, this was 47. In the following year, a British author uh, named Bernard Newman published a novel in 1948 called The Flying Saucer, which also dealt with crashed UFOs. Newman's book is an interesting one because he had numerous ties to the British government and the world of intelligence. And a lot of people have bypassed or forgotten about or just don't plain know about Bernard Newman's uh, novel. But in this particular story, what you have is, again, like a cabal within the governments. And what they decide to do, they stage three UFO crashes. They build what looked like advanced aircraft, flying saucer-type devices. They crashed one in Britain, one in Russia, and one in New Mexico, of all places. What they do, they create faked alien bodies by using body parts from exotic animals. And they even create a staged alien autopsy to try and convince the world that aliens have crashed and that the government has recovered them. In addition to that, the alien presence, which is what they try and instill in, in the media, the public, etc., leads to the creation of like a, a new world order, which again is something that is widely discussed today in some of the more extreme conspiracy websites and chat rooms, the idea that there's going to be some sort of faked alien invasion to create and lead to a new world order. That's something that Newman's novel talks about 60 years ago, in, of all places, New Mexico, with an alien autopsy film. You know, he was someone who moved effortlessly, again, between science fiction and the secret world of officialdom, in the same way that Ray Palmer, you know, was involved in sci-fi, but then became the subject of an FBI file because of this weird Maury Island case, and all in the same time frame. And, you know, I have to wonder if there wasn't, you know, some sort of linkage in all this, you know, in these early years, so to speak. The great thing about Ray Palmer, and I can't resist the opportunity because it's so, it never comes up, but when comics changed from the golden age that was prevalent in the 40s and 50s of superheroes to the sort of what they call the silver age, where they kind of rewrote the biography of all the, the superheroes, one of my favorites of all time is, is a superhero known as the Atom, who can shrink himself to microscopic subatomic size. And his, his name, the character's name, is Ray Palmer. When Gil Kane and Gardner Fox were creating him, they named this character after Ray Palmer, and he discovers this material that allows him to create... He's a physicist, so he's a scientist. And he discovers this material that allows him to create a belt that allows him to shrink down while he's spelunking in caves under the earth. So I, there's a sort of tie-in there between science fiction and the way comics were reinvented. I, I'm sorry, I, it's totally, it's apropos of nothing, but the Atom is one of my favorite comic book characters, so I, I thought I'd mention that. Paul, I wanted to ask you, going back to the War of the Worlds, not the right. uh, recent remake, but the not even the original film, but going back right to one of my heroes, Orson Welles in the radio drama, Right. People will often ask, again, let's work on the assumption that, that aliens are here and the government is keeping it a secret. 
And then you come up with the why question. Well, why would the government keep that a secret? And do you think that might have something to do with the reaction that happened after Orson Welles ran that radio play where there was panic in the streets, as it were, throughout parts of the United States? And and talk a bit about that, just the idea that maybe we're not, that people in government would look and say, we're not ready for it. We weren't ready for it then, and we're still not ready for it now. Is that is that a possibility? Do they still have? Yeah, that no, that was that, that was uh, an obvious result of Orson Welles' 1938 radio broadcast. I believe it was. I believe it was well. 38 would have put uh, what nine years before Roswell. So it was, maybe it was 37. Does anybody know? It was about about a decade before Roswell. Uh, Orson Welles scared the hell out of a lot of people who turned into his uh, War of the Worlds broadcast in the middle and missed his disclaimers at the beginning explaining that it was, uh, you know, that it was all just a uh, dramatization. Yeah, it was Halloween uh, and, 1938. Yeah, and there, there were reports of, of panic. As a matter of fact, there was a wonderful television movie made, absolutely terrific about that, called The Night That Panicked America. And if anybody can track that down, I, I, highly, I highly recommend that picture. And, People drew the conclusion from that that uh, if there ever were an alien visitation or an attack on any scale, that it would cause absolute uh, bedlam because people would be so frightened. But you know that's that's all very 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 old now. We've you know we've had almost 70 years of acclimation since then. Generations have gone by. You know, kids uh, growing up today, uh, you ask them and they say, oh, everybody knows that there's aliens. Well. You know, do they? <laughs> and, and for how long has everybody, all kids, known that they're? They assume that they exist. I think the the fact that the idea that the government is covering it up, it's beyond popular culture. I mean, it, the concept is just everywhere. And of course, we've had some major authorities, people with experience and great reputation, tell us that this is true. Absolutely, point blank, straight out. Talking, and that would include astronaut Gordon Cooper of the Mercury uh, uh, astronaut program, one of the first seven astronauts. And of course, it includes Edgar Mitchell, who walked on the moon, who has said absolutely flat out Roswell was a case of an extraterrestrial crash. They did recover hardware. He has been briefed on it at very high levels, he says, by people whose word he has every reason to be to trust. You have the same thing from Paul Hellyer, the defense minister, former defense minister of Canada, who, after not having taken these issues seriously for many, many years, found it all, came to his attention in a way that made it not only credible to him, but totally compelling that the public had to be informed. Of course, there was also the... The influence of uh, Colonel Philip Corso's book that was co-written by um, Bill Burns called The Day After Roswell, in which here you have uh, Lieutenant Colonel Philip Corso, someone with a publicly known history from World War II, who had an important position in Italy after the war for uh, security for the Allies and securing Italy, and who's trusted by many, uh, by, by senators such as Tom Merman, right-wingers who at the end of his life in the last few years said flat out, this is not fiction. The aliens are here. Roswell was real. It was extraterrestrial. This has changed the world. 
in the discoveries that have been made as a result of it. Because by telling you, we would have to uh, have told our adversaries. So it was a secret we kept from ourselves. So with all of these people flat out stating it's a fact, and with popular culture stating it's a fact, you've got an enormous disconnect between all of that that we're barraged with and on the other hand, the kind of political reaction where, you know, Bill Clinton will go on a t television or radio talk show and say, nah, he doesn't think that they're real. Uh, yes, maybe they exist way out there in another star system. Chances are they probably do. But we don't know of any way they could get here from there. And uh, he uh, just doesn't think it's true. Well, I just don't think uh, former President Clinton is being honest on that. It's interesting, and you can get dragged down into the rabbit hole of, of talking about all the, that kind of stuff. It, that's a whole show in and of itself. I've written, as you know, Paul, that I have a, I have a different view of some of these people. I've written extensively about Paul Hellyer, who, while I don't know personally, I know quite well uh, in his history. And, uh, and stay, it's interesting because you get Corso without talking at great length about Corso. It's worth mentioning that most UFO researchers, including people like Kevin Randall and Stan Friedman, who absolutely support, I mean, not only support, they're, they were the guys who drove the Roswell story for so many years and still drive. Yeah, and they don't believe, they don't believe, uh, Philip Corso. They don't but believe a word Corso says, yeah. Well, but there are those that feel that they're absolutely wrong. So you've of got course. two sides to that story. Yeah. Yes, no, and I'm just pointing out that they're, without going into a Philip Corso episode, which is another episode all on its own, I'm just yeah. pointing out that there is, I'm I'm not going to talk about Mitchell or Cooper, um, the astronauts, but particularly with Hellier, who is a, uh, you go to my blog and read my opinions on Hellier, a whole bag of worms. For me, it, it shouldn't come down to whether any particular individual, whether it's Paul Hellier, Edgar Mitchell or whatever, says something is true or something is not true. To me, it always comes down to the evidence. And so is there, are aliens from Zeta Reticuli visiting us? Let's see the evidence. Let's talk about Let's keep it in the realm of the evidence and not whether somebody's looked at the evidence that is there, unless they've actually looked at, you know, crash flying saucers or something. Um, but let's let's leave their opinions aside from it and let's just look at the evidence. Let's keep the people out of it as opposed, you know, the appeal to authority, if you will. Oh, well, so-and-so says that it's real, so it must be real. Let's just all decide on our own whether looking at the evidence objectively, what conclusions we can draw from it. Speaking well, I, Paul, i got to interrupt and tell I disagree with you. <laughs> I disagree with you. Absolutely disagree with you, particularly when it comes to men like Gordon Cooper and Edgar Mitchell. Because there has been uh, so much ridicule and so much at stake in any person with a reputation, a good reputation, an honorable reputation in this establishment, coming forward, the view that is not only unpopular, but which has been actively discredited and intentionally discredited with a lot of work, a lot of money for 50 years or more, going back to the Robertson panel committee saying, we got to debunk this idea. Let's get help from Hollywood to debunk it. With all of that, when you do have a person's stature to come forward and say, you know what? You guys are being lied to. I've been brief. I've been there. I've been in space. I've uh, made this my entire life. And uh, I'm coming forward to tell you you're snookered. That counts a whole lot more. 
than telling the general public, oh, you just go out there and look at the evidence and decide for yourself. Because what evidence are you going to look at? I, I could tell you what evidence to look at. I could take, you know, four hours to name a lot more than the ten cases that you did in your film, which I applaud you for, which were all great cases, which all helped make the case. But, um, no, I mean, we're, we're, we're on different sides here of this question, Paul. You say yes. that you're agnostic. I'm anything but an agnostic now. I, and I feel that the government that has withheld this, that has debunked this subject deliberately, that has ridiculed people, that has ruined reputations, has a lot to answer for what it's done, what you know, what it's done in withholding this, what it's done to uh, to the human race, uh, and uh, I don't know. I think uh, I, I I don't know how you get to be where you are right now. I haven't read all your blogs, but I did see your film on the uh, ten best cases, which I thought was absolutely compelling. So, what turns you into an agnostic, having been where you've been and knowing what you know? Well, no, I'm, I'm not an agnostic about the UFO phenomenon. There's, there's an objective reality to the UFO phenomenon. I, I don't see how anybody can dispute that based on the evidence. What I'm ag an agnostic about is the explanation for what UFOs are. Are they, in fact, visitors from other worlds? Are they visitors from other dimensions? Can they be explained if, with proper investigation? Can you take any individual case and explain it? The problem is, for me, that it's the ETH, and I emphasize the H, which is hypothesis. And I think it's a perfectly valid hypothesis. But I'm not an ETF guy. You know, F is in fact. It's a proven fact that I could walk into a court of law or into a scientific establishment and say, look, here's the proof, and I can satisfy uh, a jury of my peers, if you will. And I, I just don't see that. And I know what the testimony of people, witnesses are bad enough. I, I'm, I don't have a problem with witness testimony, but I know a lot of people that do. I would never hang my hat on any particular case solely on witness testimony. The best. What about the witnesses of... Um of, of, of children. The case in Africa, where about 50 school kids reported seeing a flying saucer come down, land in their schoolyard, and they saw little men with big eyes that were very scary to them. The case was investigated by uh, the late Harvard professor John Mack. There's video that's been on television of the testimony of the children as to what they saw. It is so compelling. It, you know, if I had one case, one piece of film to show to people, to get the point across to them, that these things happen, these completely anomalous incidents of flying craft piloted by beings who are not human, that it is real, that it really does happen. That's the case I would choose. That, that's the footage I would put everywhere on the, the airwaves because the kids are completely compelling. They don't have motive. They, uh, they're not making anything up. They're, you can tell that they're telling from their, their real experience. They were terrified. They saw what they saw. So, you know, the argument about, okay, well, where are they from and what are, what, you know, really, where are they coming from? Are they from another dimension? Are they from the past or the future? Or, or are they from this galaxy or another galaxy? You know, nobody has the answers to those questions. Nobody knows. 
And you, Paul, have uh, admitted that the UFO phenomenon is real, but it's real in the sense that advanced, in my opinion here, this is my conclusion from having been at this since 1987. Right. They are real nuts and bolts craft flying through the skies, sometimes coming up out of the water, coming from somewhere that are, in some cases, piloted by intelligent, non-human beings. And as soon as you've got that in your equation, as soon as you've gone there, you're at a point of having to confess that the human race is not alone as an intelligent species that has access to our planet. It's no longer just the kind of speculation of, you know, are there life forms hundreds of light years away in other star systems? And almost any scientist will tell you statistically, there's got to be. They don't believe they're visiting here because our physics doesn't allow for it. It doesn't allow for faster than light travel. We can't imagine how they could traverse the distances. Hi, this is Tamar from Namecheap. We're a domain name and web hosting company, and we really care about our customers. With domain name purchases, Namecheap offers free SSL and free WhoisGuard for a year to protect your identity from spammers. We won't bother you with unwanted messaging in your inbox or upon checkout, but most importantly, we care about you, our customers. Your satisfaction and happiness is our primary focus because your support means so much to us. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at radio.namecheap.com for web hosting and domain name specials. You can also follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash namecheap where we host many great contests or become a fan of ours on Facebook at facebook.com slash namecheap. See you online. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. This is Philip Rodno. You're listening to Paracast, one of the most informative shows out there. So listen closely. Paul Kimball, our co-host. We have Paul Davids, science fiction author and filmmaker, and Nicholas Redfern paranormal author and now paul you're going to jump in paul kimball with both feet to respond no i was just going to say can't we all get along but that's a particularly canadian way of looking at things no i i I agree with you on one thing paul and that would be that if you've reached that conclusion as you have as stan has as, as many other people have that that's what you're dealing with then you're absolutely right that puts you over here in a place where you've you've gone further than than i would go and i I think Nick would go. I'm not exactly sure, Nick, where you stand on all of this, um, but this might be a good place to bring you back into the conversation and talk about Roswell, because so many people either think Roswell was the crash of an alien spacecraft, as Paul and Stan and others would assert, or if you believe Carl Flock and the U.S. Air Force and other people, it was a Project Mogul balloon that came down. But you, a couple of years ago, came out with a different theory. Um, 
tell us a bit about what that theory was, how you came about it, speaking of conspiracies and anonymous sources. And then maybe, Paul, um, when Nick's uh, through that, we can bring you in and, and you can we can have a little conversation about Roswell uh, taking the alien meme to its, its core here. So go ahead, Nick. Yeah, sure. I mean, in terms of the, the overall UFO subject, I think one of the biggest problems that a lot of people, not deliberately, but unconsciously or subconsciously within the UFO subject make, is, is tarring everybody with the same brush. That this is the person who believes this, this is the person who believes that, etc., etc. You know, Nick's a bad guy who wrote a book about Roswell. And they perceive you as being, you know, I've been perceived as being anti-UFO, that I don't believe there's a genuine UFO phenomenon because I dared to write a book that suggested aliens might not have crashed at Roswell. I do believe there's a genuine UFO phenomenon. I actually believe there's a genuinely anomalous origin for some UFO reports, but I'm like you. I don't, I'm not sure if it's extraterrestrial or if it has some other weirdly anomalous origin that we don't even understand yet. But right. do I believe all unknown UFOs are military craft? No, I don't. I do think there's an unknown presence amongst us. But the problem I found is that so many people in the UFO subject today are unable to accept the existence of the UFO phenomenon of unknown origins unless it involves Roswell. Roswell has to be a part of the equation for them. And I've never really understood why we cannot address each case on its own merit, why one case has to become almost like the holy grail upon which a great deal of the subject is dependent, to the point where if I wrote a book about one case, I'm dismissed as a UFO skeptic. You know, if I wrote a book saying George Adamski was full of crap, people wouldn't say I was a UFO skeptic. When I write a book about Roswell, I am a UFO skeptic. And that's because Roswell has become, wrongly in my opinion, the case upon which much of ufology stands and also there are a lot of people in ufology who don't just believe that aliens crashed at roswell they want to believe the alien theory is correct and when you want to believe one theory over another you've lost the the rational approach of looking at the evidence you become someone who who, who is essentially treating the subject as a religion because you want it to be true you have faith that this particular theory is the correct one. So that's, that's the one thing I would say. Now, as far as body snatchers was concerned, one of the things that's quite incorrect is when I've seen repeated countless times that you know, Nick Redfern's theory, what a lot of people don't know is that um, 14 years before my book was published, um, in his final last but one status report on crash UFOs, Leonard Stringfield repeated, or I shouldn't say repeated, but told the same story, i.e. that Japanese individuals were used in um, experimentation in New Mexico in the summer of 47. Now, Stringfield outright says that he was told that by one of his sources. Now, John Keel, um, a lot of people have said, well, Keel talks about the, the Japanese Fugo balloon angle for Roswell. A lot of the people who also talk about that and criticize Keel don't realize that in the same article in which he talks about Fugo balloons, Keel also said that he'd been told about Japanese experiments, excuse me, experiments with Japanese individuals in balloons. Nothing to do with the Fugo, Fugo balloons, but like Next Generation, which is what I was told. Popular Mechanics in 1997 said they'd been, quote, told of a forthcoming release of documents that was going to talk about the Japanese angle for Roswell, 
um, eight years before Barbie Snatchers was published. So in other words, this story's been out for a long, long time. Keith Basterfield, an Australian researcher, openly told me he'd been given the same story six months before my book was published and before he even knew about it by a guy whose father worked in British intelligence, who I was able to interview after the book was published. So in other words, you know, there's a lot of strands for this story. And the, the people I interviewed were basically, you know, kind of similar to the, the people Popular Mechanics interviewed, Keith interviewed, Stringfield spoke with. In other words, there are people out there, old-timers, who, whether the story is true or not, or it's deception, have aspects of this story. The only difference between me and them is that I was the only one who wrote a full-length book about it. The other stories are all kind of, you know, page 46 of somebody else's book where there's half a page or a page, but it's a distilled version of exactly the same thing. So either the story's true or it's deception, disinformation, or something along those lines that's been around for a very, very long time, you know, 20 years even before my book even came out. But 20 years, look at me, all I do, it's the legal training. All I do is play the devil, devil's advocate. So now I'll play the devil's advocate for you. Mm-hmm. 20 years before your book came out would have been roughly around the time that the Roswell story was mm-hmm. resurfacing and gathering steam. So if it is, dis- if the Roswell story is true, in the sense that it's, you know, as Stan would say, aliens who crashed there. Yeah. Then that time frame would make perfect sense to start seeding a whole bunch of stories. And who knows which one's going to stick, but let's get disinformation out there and hope that, you know, any one of these things will take off and provide an alternative explanation. Um, and I'll bring, I'll bring Paul Davids back in in the conversation in a sec. But I just want to ask you, Nick, your book, do you believe it? Do you, like, is this a sort of a, because I know you and, and you and I and Greg, we all do the same things. Thought experiments, Mac did them too. But Body Snatchers in the Desert, does, has your research on that particular issue led you to a place where you now accept that that is, if not the definitive answer, the most probable or likely answer? I actually think it consider? is. I think it's a, whether or not the people, I mean, people have to remember the people I interviewed, you know, they were actually, one of the people I interviewed only had enough material to fill one and a half pages of the entire book. In other words, some of these people weren't people who were spinning massive tales to fill in every convenient gap in the story to fit their bill. So that, to me, didn't come across like a typical disinformation angle. Now, since writing the book, and this is one of the reasons why I think there's more to the Japanese angle, is that I actually uncovered official files from the FBI where a boy, a young boy, died in Lincoln County, where the Roswell event happened. He died in 49 from the plague, um, from a virus which killed him. He was taken to a place called Fort Stanton in Lincoln County also. Um, and files on this young boy were generated by the FBI and shared with the Air Force, the Atomic Energy Commission, and the CIA. And the reason they were shared with them, and, and these are freedom of information files, by the way, the reason they were shared with all these agencies was because there was a fear that the boy had actually been killed not by a plague that was actually relevant to New Mexico, but that was introduced. And one of the theories that was looked at was whether or not this particular plague was due to research by Japan's Unit 731 uh, group, which is central to the the story of body snatchers. Now, what takes it down an even more intriguing path is that where the boy was taken, Fort Stanton, 
is that during the Second World War, um, many Japanese people who lived actually in Lincoln County, where the crash happened, and, and surrounding areas like Albuquerque, were taken to Fort Stanton and interred and held there, as were a number of handicapped people. So, in other words, you have the Roswell crash in Lincoln County, where some people have said actually involved Japanese people, and you have a military base called Fort Stanton, where handicapped and Japanese people were held in the Second World War, and actually after the Second World War as well. Um, and you have a young boy taken there who died from a plague, which some people mm. thought was connected with Unit 731. So, you know, somewhere down the line, I think there's a Japanese connection. But am I open to the idea that I was deceived? Yeah, I have to be. And, you know, I'm not saying I'm, I'm any better than any other Roswell author. I'm certainly not. There's people who've been involved with it long before me. But what I would say is that I am open to the idea, as many Roswell researchers aren't, that I was deceived. You know, I can never deny that. And it would be dishonest for me to say my sources were 100% correct and I solved it. I can never say that and I wouldn't say that. Yeah, but you'd, you'd be invited to a lot more UFO conferences, Nick, if you did. He's invited to plenty. The Nick is always there and he's always uh, welcome. And I think it's, uh, it's an interesting theory, Nick, and I'm glad you wrote the book. And I read the book with interest. And um, I can't disprove it just as I can't prove the rifle case. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-728. 2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com that's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com what are you waiting for your fate awaits you've entered another dimension you've entered we have Paul Davids, filmmaker, science fiction writer. Paranormal author Nicholas Redfern, our co-host is Paul Kimball, and Paul Davids was now basically expressing his side of the story with regard to the viewpoints about Roswell. Go ahead, please. Well, I I wanted to say that I read uh, Nick Redfern's uh, book, The Body Snatchers in the Desert, with interest, and uh, uh, any theory that has... Uh, uh, multi parts to it that has um, uh, some possibility of being an explanation is, 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 is worth our time to look into it and uh, I'm glad Nick wrote the book I can't disprove the theory that's presented in the book just as I can't prove that I can't prove that there were uh, aliens recovered at Roswell but I can give 
some key personal impressions as someone who has had his life wrapped up in this in so many ways since uh, being executive producer of the film Roswell uh, starting back in 1993 we started filming actually I began working on the project in 89 so we're, we're over over 20 years of this with me and when we were researching the film before the script was even written uh, I had trips to Roswell with uh, Kevin Randall and Don Schmidt I heard many of the witnesses who were very old then firsthand and got their stories and what I heard again and again from you know relatives of uh, Sheriff Wilcox and uh, the base photographer and uh, the people who had family who were there then who were deeply involved was they captured aliens here then they brought in alien bodies they were they were recovered along with their their craft that's what the people that we talked to believed was the case you know could they have been wrong could they have been reporting what they saw based on not realizing that a, you know a japanese midget used in some arming experiment was what was being brought in i don't know but i look at it this way it's now 2010 it was about 1995, 1994, actually, when the Air Force put this story to bed. They thought once and for all. They tried to explain it away, uh, and they they offered uh, they offered every everything that they could come up with uh, to produce a large volume about the Roswell incident. Case closed. Two volumes, I think, actually. To say that this was an experimental uh, mogul balloon connected with research about did the Russians have the atomic bomb. Now, and then as far as the aliens were concerned, it was a uh, misinterpretation of crash dummies that were dropped in the desert years after this happened, but they said the people who lived down there forgot what year they came across these, these parachuted crash dummies and that they thought that they were aliens, which always sounded ridiculous to me. Uh, and why is it that so many of the people who have studied the case, worked on the case so hard, just rejected what the government had to say in 1996 and felt that uh, it was an attempt to bamboozle the public again. Because that is the way I felt. We know that the, the documents uh, that were communication between the various bases then, Fort Worth and Roswell, Wright Field, they were destroyed without authorization. That was the result of uh, the government accounting agency's uh, examination of this, that the key documents that could have answered this question were destroyed long ago without authorization. Someone really wanted to silence this, well, to well, you know, this, this cover up this paper trail. And why wouldn't it have come out now if it's a, something such as the Army experimenting with uh, some Japanese bitches? Look, mm. look at all the things that have come out, you know, experiments with, uh, with, with uh, causing people to have the syphilis, to giving various mm. diseases, to taking civilians and subjecting them to radiation to see what the uh, results were going to be. So much really 
horrible stuff has come out about uh, government experimentation that is admitted now and is part of the public record. Mm. Why still cover up this? It makes absolutely no sense unless well, the ramifications of it run so deep that the risk of letting this out has really, really far-reaching consequences. That's what I believe is the case. And I absolutely believe astronaut Edgar Mitchell, who walked on the moon, that it was a case of the recovery of a crashed alien vehicle. And I personally believe what Philip Corso said when he claimed that the hardware recovered from that crash, which was given to industry through Army research and development projects, did result over a period of time in many discoveries that have changed the world as we know it today. And I think that um, I think that that's a lot of food for thought. And you well, can I mean, debate it, yeah. you can diagnostic about it, you can reject it, but if the theory is true, we've got a lot to be really concerned about how secrecy works in our society and what it has done to us. And there's no better author on this subject today than Richard Dolan, whose two volumes, UFOs and the National Security State, totaling up to a couple thousand pages, I think, um, there's no better job of analyzing all of this, what happened, what the evidence is, what the repercussions are. We can debate it forever. Uh, there's incredible documentation and analysis that Dolan provides. He, he's the one I would turn to, and Edgar Mitchell, who was there on the moon, who's come back to Earth, who's told us, it's real, they're lying to you. Simple as that for me. And, and my problem, and I know the Paracast listenership would, uh, would savage me on the message boards if I didn't say something. My problem with both of those things, uh, as I guess we're running short of time, so it'll be a very quick problem. One, it can be a four-minute problem. There you go. Well, I'll make it a one-minute problem. One, the appeal to authority, um, unless Edgar Mitchell can step forward. And, you know, I have nothing but the greatest respect for any astronaut, so don't take what I'm about to say wrong. But unless somebody can step forward and say, here are the names of the sources that told me these things, you can go talk to them yourselves, we can get this out in the public, then all it is is some, somebody telling me something that they say they've heard. And, you know, you can weigh that. It's, I, will, I will grant you, Paul, that that is evidence of a sort. But when you're weighing it, you put more substance to it than I would. I prefer in dealing with hard data and those sorts of things. And while Richard Dolan is a friend of mine, as my Facebook page will say, um, I have a different view of his books than you do. Yes, there's some interesting information in there, but when you have a historian and uh, that's what I studied myself, who does things like speculate that Jim McDonald was killed by the government um, and speculate with the Dozens era. of people have speculated that because the speculation goes back to the year of his death. It's nothing no, new. Nobody, nobody within the UFO community, uh, including people who knew McDonald very well, like Jerry Clark, takes that even remotely seriously. Um, McDonald had already tried to kill himself once. He had family problems. He was depressed over the collapse of his career. Um, all of which, you know, people killed themselves to to pull, to weave that in, which Dolan does into some sort of. My problem is not with the cases that Dolan cites. My problem is that he then weaves it into this overarching conspiratorial look at the way our society works, and I just don't think he has the evidence to back that up. But that is, 
you know, reasonable people can have reasonable, as Rich and I have, reasonable disagreements over that sort of thing. So, Nick, you, were you trying to make a, you were trying to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to make one comment, which, which for me at least, and I feel is important, and people might say, well, he would feel it's important, but it's just a <laughs> quick one. It's re in relation to the destruction of these files that, that couldn't be found from Roswell. Um, one of the things I feel is important is in relation to this issue of the destruction of files or the missing files that the General Accounting Office couldn't find from Roswell um, in relation to the Roswell events. Now, all the people I interviewed from my book said that the events at Roswell were the culmination of 12 months of research, which would have begun in '46 and which went through into 47. Now, the files that vanished from the Roswell base, if Roswell was a random event that occurred in the summer of 47, you would expect to see the files vanished from the summer of 47 because it was an event that suddenly occurred out of nowhere. However, if you read the GAO report carefully, you find that the files that vanished didn't date from 47 onwards when Roswell occurred. They dated from 46. So my view is that if Ron Roswell was a random event that occurred when something just crashed out of the sky and files were generated in 47, why are the files from 46 all missing as well? Unless it was something that preempted the crash. It's an interesting point, but what specifically is missing that would have answered the question is the outgoing messages from the Roswell base. But, yes, but they date from 46, not 47. Right. And you're saying that the outgoing messages from the base are gone from 46 as well? From 46, not saying. from the summer of 47. They date from a year earlier. So we have to ask, if Roswell was an event that occurred quite literally out of the blue, why, why shred files from 12 months earlier unless something that was going on that was also related to Roswell 12 months earlier? Yeah, and you know what the great thing about being the guest host, or guest co-host of the Paracast is? I can do things you get like... get the last word. <laughs> no, I don't want the last word. I want to take two minutes, and I want to swivel on a dime, and I want to ask you, Paul, about Jesus in India, speaking of conspiracies, or alternative yeah. takes on history. Um, and I, I'm, I want to talk a bit more about this, but you know, give us the one or two minute spiel on what Jesus in India is about, because I think people will find it a fascinating film, uh, having seen it myself, um, and maybe up in Canada, at least, it's not as well known as it should, should be. So go ahead. Talk a bit about Jesus, from Roswell and Flying Saucers to Jesus in India, only on the Paracast. Well, the short story is that um, in the New Testament, it tells of Jesus' life up to age 12, and then there's what we would call in film a jump cut of 18 years, where you hear nothing about the life of Jesus until he's 30 years old. And in the East, in India, there is a very ancient tradition that during those years that Jesus came to India, then St. Thomas did go to India uh, after the crucifixion. And uh, the Vatican, John Paul II, paid homage to him there. So the question is, uh, are these just legends and myths regarding Jesus' travels in India, or is there substance to back them up? What about all the documents that we hear? And why is there a tomb for Mother Mary in Pakistan and a tomb for Jesus in Kashmir? And uh, what is the support that this could have any connection with the people that are written about in the Bible? I went to India, traveled for six weeks all throughout the country, talking to incredibly fascinating people, going to uh, monasteries and Hindu temples and, uh, and, and Catholic museums. And 
collected the uh, opinions, ideas, and research of many, many people, also in universities in the United States, uh, also people from London. So Jesus in India puts together all the evidence that I could find about that ministry. So there you go, folks. If you're interested in biblical mysteries, and who isn't? I've, I, actually, you know what, Paul? That's the first time I've ever heard Jesus' life described in the same sentence as a, the term jump cut, which <laughs> I can definitely relate to. You know, it's like there's an 18-year jump cut in Jesus' screenplay. And you know what? Here, this is what happens, room, by, folks. This is, this is what happens, yeah. of course, when you get it two filmmakers in the same room. Paul David, you had something to say? Yeah, yeah, that part of the story was left on the cutting room floor. Yeah, the, the, <laughs> the dialogue, the dialogue was horrible. We just didn't; the audience wouldn't buy it. So there, yeah, there that, you go. It, Listen, folks, there. if I don't stop it now, the rest of this episode will be on the cutting room floor. Don't. Nick, we can't have that, you know. Nicholas Redfern, tell us where we can find more of the things that you do. Uh, NickRedfern.com. Lots of information on projects I'm up to. Things I'm investigating, books, um, where I'll be speaking, etc. Paul David's word, we find your stuff. All my films and books are listed at my website, pauldavids.com. But especially go to the website, jesusinindiathemovie.com, and have that mystery opened up to you. And we hope it does make $2.6 trillion, just as Avatar did. (laughs) Paul Kimball, where do we find your stuff? Um, as the Beatles said, here, there, and everywhere, but if you want to focus in on something, uh, redstarfilms.blogspot.com is where most of my UFO and paranormal writing can be found. And on Canadian television, Ghost Cases. Keep an eye out for it. We're all over the place up here in Canada, you know, tracking down ghosts and spooky things. Nicholas Redfern, Paul Davidson, especially Paul Kimball, our special co-host this week. Thank you all for joining us this week on the Paracast. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thank everybody. You. Thanks. See you later. Ta. The Powercast, the gold standard of paranormal radio, is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in The Powercast. <laughs>